As Kevin has mentioned, we are starting a new series uh, this week uh, that will run for a couple of months uh, called The Good and Beautiful God Revealed to Us Through Jesus. And it is, as it says, um, a series about getting to know God better. And while we probably at some level all know things about God, Perhaps, like I was a few years ago, there is a missing gap of knowing about him and knowing him. When I was around 25 or so, uh, I was talking with uh, one of the leaders from our young marrieds group at the church that Claire and I were attending at the time. I've told this story. Most of you probably have heard it at some point or another. And I, I said to this young leader of our young marrieds group when we were young, <coughs> Not Kevin Young, but just when I was young. You know, I've been a Christian most of my life, as I had been. I've, I've attended church most of my life. I've read the Bible numerous times. Claire and I had even been missionaries. We'd led people to Christ. And I, but I said to this leader, you know, I know all about God, but I don't think I know him. And I said as well, I, I don't think I have a clue about what worship is all about. And it really was very soon thereafter, I don't know exactly how long, but fairly soon after that, that, that Claire and I were invited to visit uh, Vineyard Church of Anaheim, uh, which we did. Uh, Joy, our eldest, who is here with her firstborn son, uh, was one at the time that we visited that church. Um, as we attended there for a few years, um, one of the favorite songs was in the Sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, and so... Joy would ask us, are we going to the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit? And uh, she meant that church. Since that time, I have been on a journey of getting to know God in contrast to simply knowing about him. And that journey for me has included learning that some of the things I believed about him were wrong. And actually, some of those things were hindering me from really knowing him. As a part of this series, even, uh, we are going to be inviting our community groups to sort of partner and, and proceed with us through this series. They have received materials and, are, as a part of the community group, are going to be incorporating discussions uh, around the topics that we are discussing here on Sunday mornings. Uh, there are some exercises, so to speak, some things that can be done in a small group setting uh, that can't be done as, as easily here. Um, and so we would really encourage you very much so, if you're not in a community group, maybe you can't make that as a long-term commitment, but we would welcome you to check out one of the community groups so that during this time where we are reflecting on these things together, both here as well as at the community group level, that you would be sort of making that journey with us. And so we'd encourage you to be involved in that way. Also, as Kevin mentioned, we are uh, doing a 40-day fast. I thought it was starting tomorrow. Some people thought it started already. So uh, if, if you're with me, we can start tomorrow. I don't know when 40 days is up with that. I don't do that. I've been a little busy and focused with calendars lately. So... Um, and again, as Kevin said, our, our goal is simply to find something that we, can, that we can discontinue, abstain from, for this, these days that would provide us an opportunity to reflect on and 
engage God. Doesn't have to be a lot. Um, we've done this every single year now for a long time. And every year have had uh, reports, testimonies, stories of, of people who have experienced uh, something new about God in a very, very profound way. I have a very dear friend who was, was absolutely transformed and changed as a result of implementing the, the discipline of simply getting up earlier and in meeting with God. Had not been doing that as a regular process in their life. And uh, I remember, you know, you know, a year later or months later, numerous times, that person reflecting, why in the world did I not start this a long time ago? And uh, so you don't have to wait. You can start now. It can be whatever you want it to be. We're not big on it has to be food. You know, it might be ice cream, like maybe. I, I still haven't even resolved what I'm doing yet, but ice cream's a fairly staple thing for me. Um, <laughs> You can ask family and friends about that. I, I, I like having a little ice cream with my chocolate syrup. Uh, sometimes I don't even need the ice cream. The chocolate syrup's great. But anyway, uh, for this series, we are using a tool that uh, the board has read, that our community group leaders has, have read, which is a book entitled The Good and Beautiful God, written by James Bryan Smith. Very easy reading. Um, if you have time and interest, we would highly encourage you, welcome you to get a copy, uh, read along as we consider these various aspects of God that the author describes. Uh, we're not going to be staying in quite the exact same order that, that the book presents in, but I think if you uh, process through it, uh, you'll be able to uh, enjoy that. We're not going to use exactly the same materials or stories per se that are there. It's a, it's a workbook sort of kind of for you to kind of read along and reflect in the same categories. But uh, some of our teachers will be uh, teaching in the topic, but not, not from, obviously, the book itself. So we would encourage you uh, to do that. This morning is, is sort of an introduction, uh, sort of a uh, presentation of uh, kind of the main layout of this. But before we head there, let's pray. Uh, Papa, I thank you that um, you have provided all we need for life and godliness. That, that passage I have reflected on, I've taught on so many times from Peter. Everything we need, you have provided for life and godliness. And yet, many of us find ourselves still struggling with issues from life, issues related to uh, patterns and habits in our lives that we wish were not present, that we somehow could just sort of lay aside. Many of us, I know, have, have in times of fasting, in, in times of uh, New Year's resolutions and other times, have, have made uh, commitments to, to see things changed in our lives and yet have found uh, disappointment and failure and have become discouraged. And so as we uh, reflect uh, these couple of months about who you are and, and how does that narrative, how does that understanding work itself out to becoming change and transformation in our lives, I pray you'd really help us. Father, I believe with all my heart that, that there are things here for us to get 
and that if we can, that it can open up whole new opportunities uh, for personal development, for life and godliness. So let it come as we talk. And Holy Spirit, be with me as I share. Uh, you are the teacher. You are our guide. And we welcome you to uh, bring to mind and heart uh, those things from this uh, talk and lesson that will help us to know you better. In Jesus' name. So how do we change? How does change come about in our lives? As a follower of Christ throughout my life, there have been areas of my life that I have desired and, and wanted to change, areas that I've, things that I've been involved in that I've struggled with sometimes for years. About 12 years ago, uh, Claire and I were on a date, and we were sitting in the car outside of La Madeleine's uh, restaurant. I, I can't remember if we had already eaten or we're going to go in to eat, but I very clearly. And we had been, uh, it was a season when we actually saw a, a marital counselor for a few years and we were working on uh, things uh, in ourselves for our marriage. And I, I looked at Claire and I just said, honey, you know, I love you. And so it, w if there was one thing that you would like to see changed in me, what would that be? And I, I was genuinely interested to make a change that would express love to her. And she very succinctly, very quickly responded <laughs> that you would not be so negative and pessimistic. And I about fell out of my chair. Well, I would have fallen out of my chair if, I hadn't, if I'd been sitting in a chair, but I was sitting in the car. So, you know, you, I just leaned back against the door flabbergasted. And I said to her, well, I can't change that. That's who I am. And I, I, I believed that at my heart of hearts, that that was who I was, who I be, and how do you change who you be? That was the story in my head. But I, I said to her, you know, you are, are worthy of being loved in a way that is meaningful to you, and I'm going to work on that. I, I don't know that I can see it fully happen, but I will work on it. And it was more than hard. Um, I, I did not feel that there was success for a long time, hardly any seemingly change. And, and what I actually ended up doing in the, in the first years was simply just shutting down and sharing less with Clara. Because what I was thinking was negative and pessimistic, and if I just don't say it to her, then I'll be less negative and pessimistic. But the attitude still was present, and it was, it was a challenge. But I will say that over time, and she will say that over time, not as much a result of willpower, but as a result of changes in who I be, as a result of my relationship with God, as a result of general efforts to practice being more loving to people, efforts to practice thinking about the good things in life over against the negative aspects, I've changed. And... Somewhere, as late as maybe three or four years ago, it was significantly minimized. 
I don't have to concentrate on not sharing with Clara anymore. Every once in a while, that, that orientation will pop in, and I just think, well, that's not the truth. And I make a choice, and I reflect on those things that are good and true and lovely. Now, that that has been minimized does not mean I'm perfect. <laughs> you can ask Clara. She'll be happy to tell you. There are plenty of things that I'm still working on, areas of my life that still need change. But significant change has occurred. There's a belief in our society, a mindset, that people change by simply mustering their willpower. That if they set about trying hard enough to change some behavior or habit, that they can change. But the reality is, according to statisticians, that most often that fails. Willpower is not sufficient. According to a study done at the University of Hertfordshire, psychologist Richard Weissman surveyed 700 people, and less than 25% of those had managed to stick to their resolutions that they had attempted to uh, make. And of the 78% who failed, many had focused on the downside of not achieving the goals. They had suppressed their cravings. They had fantasized about being successful. They had adopted a role model or relied on willpower alone. And 78% in this study did not accomplish the change that they were looking for. And Weissman said this, Many of these ideas are frequently recommended by self-help experts, but our results suggest that they simply don't work. If you're trying to lose weight, it's not enough to stick a picture of a model on your fridge or fantasize about being slimmer. If that doesn't work, how do we change? And according to many psychologists, as well as to James Smith, the author of the book that we are using as a tool, The Good and Beautiful God, the will actually has no power. There is no such thing as willpower. The will is simply the human capacity to choose. Should I wear a yellow shirt this morning or a blue shirt? I ask myself. Ultimately, I choose the yellow shirt. And my will was that which made the choice. However, when I got in the car, I spilled coffee on the yellow shirt, so I had to go back in and I put on an orange shirt. And that was good because Jamie's wearing an orange shirt as well. And for some reason, Jamie and I, we, we looked the same, we had the same similar, you know, who we are, and we, three times out of four Sundays, wear the same color shirt. So I, I understand now why I spilled the coffee, because otherwise I would have had a yellow shirt and he would have had an orange shirt and it wouldn't have worked. Anyway, our will, it makes a choice. But the will, rather than having power, is itself directed by three primary influencers, according to Smith. Those influencers of the will are the mind, the body, and our social context. What we think in our minds creates emotions which leads to decisions or actions. 
Yellow shirt or blue shirt? You know what? That yellow shirt is bright. It, it causes me to look kind of good. And you know what? I'm going to pick that one today instead of the blue one. There's, there are, there's thinking process sometimes. Sometimes, you know what? That shirt's more comfortable. But the will doesn't have power. It simply makes the choice influenced by our mind Influenced as well by our body. Our body is a complex working of impulses that influence our will. Much, maybe most of our bodily systems run without our help. We do not have to think about pumping our blood or causing our heart uh, to, to pump or not pump. But when the body has a need, there are aspects in which it communicates really clearly and influences our will by identifying our need for food or water or even air. And the body expresses itself to the mind through feelings like hunger or thirst or lack of oxygen. The mind then sends a message to the will and it tells the will, get food now. Get something to drink. Breathe. Finally, the will is also influenced by our social context. We are highly influenced by the people and situations around us. In middle school, we call it peer pressure. Uh, when we're adults, we simply call it uh, getting along with others. But it's the same, our social context. I mean, the fact that Jamie wears a, an orange shirt, you know, that, that puts some pressure on me to make sure that I am, I'm paralleling, you know, the, the style. Although he wore a T-shirt and I wore a button-up today, but that, that usually isn't reflected. But our... Social systems, who we hang out with, makes a big difference about the choices we make. So if we want to change, as I did regarding being pessimistic or negative, or as probably you might in some area of your life, we change not so much by willpower, but by having the influencers of what we think the actions and practices of what we do in the social involvements and settings, having those things modified or change. And the good news about change is we have control over those three things. We cannot simply change by saying, I'm going to change. We have to examine what we think, our stories, the narratives we have in our heads, we have to examine what are the patterns and actions and practices that we're involved with. And who is it that we're interacting with in our social context? And if we change those things, and we can, then change will come as a part of a simple process of life change, almost sort of naturally. But it isn't natural. It's supernatural. When new ideas, new practices, new social settings are adopted, our will is influenced and change happens. Now, Jesus understood, as you can imagine, how people change. He had lived himself as a human being, as a child, growing up, meeting and knowing people, but also having the influence of God and the Holy Spirit unhindered. Jesus understood how people change. And that is one of the reasons that he taught in stories, or what the Bible calls parables. 
Jesus used narratives to explain his understanding of God and the world. We often cannot remember information or facts where we will remember a story much more readily. Later that day, Matthew 13, Jesus left the house, sat beside the lake. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore. And he told many stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some weeds. No, no, no. Farmer went out to plant some seeds. You guys know the story, right? How did he plant those seeds? Nicely tilled in rows? He scattered them. You guys all know that story. What were some of the ground types that he scattered the seeds on? Rocky ground, sand, place where people walked on it, and then fertile ground, and then there were the the weedy patches, like my whole yard, my backyard, all my front yard. We pulled some weeds this week, though. We're really excited. Okay, do you get my point there? We know that story. Now, yes, we've heard that story many times, many of us. But we live in a world of narratives and stories. We as human beings live by our stories. From early on, we're told stories by our parents, which help us to interpret how life is or ought to be. And when we have a significant experience, one that shapes us, we turn it into a story. My very first memory that I have of life was being in a hospital corridor. I was in a crib. I was two or three-ish. And I had scratched a scab off my elbow. And one of the nurses kindly brought methylate and put that on my arm. Now, for those of you who are young, you won't know what methylate is. But us old folks are going, oh, boy. I mean, kind of just get some fire and you know, aim it right at the wound, branding iron, whatever, it burns like crazy. Alcohol maybe might be parallel, but I don't know if it does quite the same thing. So why do I remember that story? The pain. And I had my tonsils out, and there's other stories, two more stories that go along with that story that are tied to my first memories. Real easy for me to remember that. I don't remember, you know, being taught in first grade, you know, my my math, right? But I have pictures in my mind, even of kindergarten, of taking a tarantula to school that was my brother's pet and the teacher not allowing me to take it out. Like my brother, we always put it on our arms and let it walk around, but my teacher wouldn't let us. You might remember that story from today and nothing else I share, but I would hope... (laughs) That you may be remembering, oh yeah, that's right, he told a story because he wants us to think about the fact that we think in story, which is my point. Most of us simply move from one narrative to another. When I'm driving, I have this terrible habit of making up stories about the people around me. (laughs) You know, why they were such a jerk cutting me off, right? Right? But also, I make up the story, you know, if I'm not quite, if I'm doing the speed limit, which is what I really try and do most, a number of years ago, I made a significant change with willpower and God's help and, and my children to uh, 
stop speeding. I can't say that I always win, but, but I really have made a change. So as a result of that, I'm constantly going the speed limit, and I feel the pressure. The narrative in my head is that the people behind me want me to go faster. And I get nervous and upset because of the narrative that's in my head that I'm thinking about them. And they're worrying about, you know, what's happening at work or what they're going to cook. They've got other narratives in their head. They probably don't have the same narrative that I have in my head about them. We are storied creatures. When I'm heading home after church, I, I picture a story of what I will do that afternoon or that evening. <laughs> I may even pay, begin to paint the story of what my week is going to be like. Okay, on Monday, that's right. I've got an interview at noonish, something like that. I've got another interview on Wednesday, and I'm hoping to hear back from that other. This story about my life in the future, all the time. After a job interview, and tell you, in seven months now, I have had a lot of job interviews that I thought I should have gotten the job. I mean, they were just great interviews. I had great phone pre-interviews. The people said, I'll call you tomorrow, and I've never heard from them since, even after the five emails I sent them and said, what happened? No, I didn't do that. But after every interview, I create a story, a narrative in my head of what it would be like to work there. Now, maybe you're all not like that, but I am constantly developing and thinking stories in my head. We create them every day of our lives. We do it from the moment we begin putting words together. The, the little toddler falls down. He says, Mommy, I fell down and hurt myself. That's a story. It's a story to bring about a response of another human being to their circumstance. Most much of our language is story. We think in narrative. We dream in narrative. We daydream in narrative. We remember. We anticipate. We hope. We despair. We believe. We doubt. We plan. We revise. We criticize. We gossip. We learn. We hate. And we love in narrative. We are storied creatures. And our stories help us navigate our world. They help us to understand right and wrong and to provide meaning. We are shaped by our stories. In fact, our stories, once in place, will very readily determine much of our behavior. And they can do it without regard to them being accurate or even helpful. When we have been hurt by someone, very often, if we are unable to, with God's help, easily forgive, we will rehearse the story of that hurt. And a root of bitterness, what the Bible calls, can come that is planted in us as a result of a story that we are believing about that person about what that person believes about us, and our life can be changed as a result of a simple situation where maybe there was miscommunication. Maybe when they bumped into you, they weren't trying to push, put hot coffee on your chest. 
Maybe it really was an accident. But we can have circumstances in our lives that create stories. We can have children that laugh at us when we are a child and can develop stories in our heads of shame and of rejection that can run our lives for the rest of our lives till the day we die. And we perhaps will never even visit the accuracy or the helpfulness of those stories. And this is crucial to understand. The narratives that we have absorbed from our families, our society, our culture, our education, our religious experiences are running and they're directing our lives by influencing our practices, our emotions, and our will. And what we need to learn to do is to recognize and identify the narratives in our lives that are false and learn the true narratives of Jesus and change our false narratives and align and accept the narratives of Jesus. That will bring change to our thinking, altering our practices, and within a supportive social context will influence our will and our lives will be changed. That is one of the reasons why we bring a message on a Sunday morning on a weekly basis. That is why we encourage you to be reading your Bible on a regular basis, praying and encountering. The narratives that we have in our heads are not all true. Many are faulty and are harming us. They are running, and as the author puts it, ruining our lives. I'm, uh, this topic, this idea of these three influencers is not just good modern psychological thinking. The Apostle Paul speaks of this process very clearly. Numbers of places. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal, I beg you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul talks about our thoughts here. He talks about having our minds renewed, transformed is his word. He speaks of practical offering of the practices of our life. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's painting a story, a narrative for them of the sacrificial system. And what happens to the sacrifice that's on the altar? It's dead. If we are presenting our lives to God, the story, the narrative of baptism, that in baptism we die, 
and then are raised again is a story, a narrative, a picture of the truth of the scripture that Kevin mentioned earlier today, which was if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Is that the narrative you are living with? Are you living with the narrative that you have been completely and completely and utterly had every sin in your life forgiven and gone and that Christ looks at you, God looks at you and does not see sin? Which narrative are you living with? We... We've got to recognize that the reason, one of the greatest reasons for the Bible is to help us replace these faulty understandings, these faulty mindsets, these stories with the truth of what he says. So Paul here talks about the mind, changing that. He's talking about changing our practices. And then that third aspect is having to do with our social context and relationships. He says, do not be, trans- do not be conformed to the world. All three of those aspects are highlighted here. And then the fourth, that we would change. Transformation. Discerning what is the will of God. Another passage where he does this is Ephesians 4, 22 and 24. You were taught, he's talking to a Christian church that he has spent time with and taught them before. And he's reminding them of his story told once before. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, all right, it's not in the same order and pattern, But he's talking about the renewal of our minds, the changing of our thoughts and what we believe. He's talking about practices, putting off, discontinuing, abstaining from practices that are not helpful. Learning some new practices, implementing some new activities. And then he even speaks about in this created to be like God. So. Inviting God into our social context is a great idea. And in Ephesians 5, if you read further, he talks about social relationships and change of the people we hang out with. Not in this exact verse, but if you were to go on and read it. These aspects, these elements of change that influence our will are crucial for us to understand. The author uh, in this uh, book has presented a triangle, uh, what he calls a triangle of transformation. And um, the first aspect that we have touched on here is the idea of adopting the narratives of Jesus. And adopting the narratives of Jesus has to do with thinking the thoughts of Jesus a little hard to see there. Sorry about that. A little too dark. Adopting the narratives of Jesus. Thinking the thoughts of Jesus. Second one is engaging in what the author calls soul training exercises. 
These are the practices. These are the things that we don't do and do. And they have to do with dealing with the things that Jesus did. So thinking the thoughts of Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did. And then the third element here that he highlights is participating in community. We're encouraging you to be in community with people that are like you, that are like-minded in the sense of people who wanting to help you, partner with you to see change in your life. And then the author brings this fourth element, which is welcoming the work of the Holy Spirit. Relying on the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus did. Jesus, we're told, at the beginning of his ministry, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus went out and did the things he did because of the influence and the input of the Holy Spirit. Let's, I want to talk now about these uh, four elements somewhat briefly. Adopting the narratives of Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, as the way, as the truth, as the life, we can trust what Jesus said. Does that make sense? If he's the truth, then what he said was true. Meaning, what he said about God, what he said about us, what he said about people, what he said about God's heart and plan for the world is true. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. How's it go? That whoever, whoever, whoever... Whoever believes, is anybody left out? For God so loved the world. Is anyone left out of that? Is there any person who is so wicked, so mean and vile, and who doesn't like you, that they don't deserve and are not a part of the world? What are the narratives we have in our heads about other religions? What are the other, that we have about Christian cults? We need to learn the heart and mind and get the thoughts of Jesus. Jesus is the truth. What he said was true, not what we might think on our own. In order to see change occur in our lives, the first thing we have to do is change our thinking. The opening statement of Jesus' first, first sermon recorded in Mark chapter 1 was, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe in this good news. The word repent in, in Greek is metanoia, and it means to change your mind. Change your thinking. And if Jesus is declaring it in his first sermon, it's more than just a good idea. Right? Changing your mind, changing your thinking about how you are oriented in this world is required to enter the kingdom of God. We must have our minds changed. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent. Change your mind. Turn from what you have believed and believe now in this good news. 
in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. The word mind is thoughts, thinking. Have the same thoughts, have the same thinking in you that was in Christ. This is a crucial understanding. We have to learn to begin to identify the false narratives. When we come up against a scripture, we need to not simply say, oh, gee, that's a nice idea. I should do that sometime, right? I should help somebody like that. No, no, no. That's the way we're supposed to live. Adopting the narratives of Jesus is the way that we come to have the mind and thoughts of Jesus. That's the first element of transformation and change, adopting the narratives of Jesus. Secondly, engaging in soul training exercises. We've described this area as having to do with our body or what we do, our actions, our practices. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in Ephesians 4 in the passage we looked at earlier. Put off your old self. Stop certain practices. Be made new in your thinking. Get your head lined up right. And put on the new self. Put on practices that are reflective of this new life. Begin to live as if you are a new creation. Stop living in the old life and start living, making, having habits and practices that are according with the new life. The author of the book describes this area as soul training exercises. Now, I think all of us in our society, we are well aware that every athlete in every sport who is competent and successful, is involved in rigorous training. You don't, you don't win a competitive tennis match. You don't win a competitive swim meet or basketball game or any other sport without implementing rigorous and ongoing training. Right? I mean, how many of us said, yeah, I want to start riding my bike. Yeah, I want to start jogging. I want to lose some pounds or something like that. How successful are we doing at that? Most of us, not very, without some change to our practices, some implementation of some discipline, of some training. Similarly, when we want to see real change in our lives, we too must implement rigorous and ongoing training. We can't just say, gee, I'd really like to not do that anymore. I'd really like to start doing that. That's a good idea. Yeah, it really is. What training program, what practices need to be changed and altered? Here's, here's Paul's words, and I think it so clearly explains and supports this idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and 27, using the same illustration or the same picture, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. 
I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Is that not a portrayal of a rigorous spiritual training program that Paul has implemented in his own life? If he who had an encounter of a vision of the risen Christ years later needed to continue to implement a rigorous training program, spiritual training program, do you think we might need that? We need it. It's a picture, and it's an illustration that we understand, but, but infrequently do we really implement this in our spiritual lives. We're more accustomed to doing it in things that are more physical, like weight loss or quitting smoking or whatever. But what about our spiritual lives? Is that not even more significant, more important? The Apostle Paul is telling us in this passage, if you want to win in life, you're going to have to train to win. Sitting in the stands, watching others train and compete will not get you in the game or competing to win. It's this, this ongoing training of reading and studying the Bible, of prayer, of worship, of meeting with God's people that will, over a lifetime, influence our mind, our thinking, our practices, our social context, and we will see change. We will see transformation. Does that make sense? So that second area has to do with practices. Soul training exercises, the author calls them. The third element is participating in community, which has to do with changing our social involvements and settings. Human beings have been designed and created for community. Just as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in community, so God designed us to live in community. It is not good for the man to be alone. God has created us needing one another, needing to experience and express interdependent relationships, not independent relationships. We need one another. Just as our social involvements and settings can influence us negatively, such as hanging out with the wrong crowd leads us to do the wrong things, so hanging out with the right crowd can help us as well do the right things. We describe our church as a community group-based church rather than a, a Sunday morning-based church. And what that means is that we believe that it is that smaller context of ongoing relationships where we really can know one another and be known as being where real-life change can best occur. Now, it's not automatic. Just going to a small group does not make you connected and provide you those supports for making life change. We can still be an individual in any context we want to be. But the goal of that, like Jesus and his disciples, is that over time we're sharing stories, we're sharing experiences, and we're allowing people to have influence into our life to be able to say, Gosh, that doesn't sound real good. 
and not freak out and run out and never go back to the small group. We need people involved with us. We cannot make these kinds of changes and experience what we need to alone. The last element that the author highlights is welcoming the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples that upon his departure and ascension, that God the Father would send the Holy Spirit to be our guide and teacher. John 14, 26 says, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. That's about the transformation of the mind. It's about having our thinking changed. Does that make sense? He will teach you everything. He will remind you. We, we call it conscience. It's not conscience. It's the Holy Spirit. It is at least, I think, even for non-Christians. Uh, Holy Spirit is hovering. He is at work. He is who is present on the planet today to facilitate people getting the right narratives, getting to know and experience God. The Holy Spirit is our unseen teacher, our guide, who points us to Jesus, who reminds us of Jesus' words, of Jesus' stories. The Holy Spirit, then, is the one who helps us change our narratives by pointing out the false narratives and helping us replace them with true narratives. Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears from the Father and will declare to you the things that are to come. We cannot see the change and transformation we want in our life without the work of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, um, submitting to and welcoming His involvement in our lives. When those words come in our mind, you really need to turn that off. You really need to not be doing that. You, you really need to leave now. We need to listen. We need to recognize that there is an invitation to change our narratives. There's an invitation for an opportunity to see our will influenced by the Holy Spirit. So four elements of transformation that the author has identified for us. Adopting the narratives of Jesus, engaging in soul training exercises, participating in community, welcoming the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me uh, close by sharing with you um, a false narrative about God that, that I had for a long time and that many people struggle with. When I was about uh, 29 or so, Claire and I had a, a regular habit in that era of buying a, a new Christian album uh, once a month. Um, they were cassette tapes about that, by that time. Uh, earlier, they'd been now they're CDs, of course, or downloads. Uh, anyway, we haven't patterned that for a while. But back then, we would try and buy a Christian album with the intent that it could help us. And we bought one by a Christian singer called Twyla Paris. And one of the songs on that uh, album 
uh, described our life being like a race. And at the end of our race, we're going to run into the arms of God. I thought that was a beautiful picture up there. And while listening to that song, I'm 29, been a Christian all my life. I've now been involved in the vineyard for four years. I'm beginning to learn and know about God. While I'm listening to that song, I see a picture in my mind. I see a picture of myself running on a track in a large stadium, coliseum, filled with people. And there's other runners as well on the track. And there in the stadium, in the lower seats, God the Father was standing and cheering for me. And in that moment, I realized that I had lived my life with a false narrative that God is like some giant policeman waiting for me to do something wrong so that he could punish me. And the true narrative revealed to me in that moment was that instead, God is for me like a caring coach or a parent. He's cheering me on in the race of my life. I grew up in a Christian home having been taught morals about how to live. But I had struggled, as most of us do, with patterns of sin and failure and shame. And as a result, I had accepted the lie of the accuser that God was mean and angry with me for my sin. But that night, I was healed. I was changed. I was transformed and delivered of all that shame and guilt. And I made a choice with my will to believe the narrative that God loves me, that He is for me, and that he is cheering me on in the journey of my life. A number of years later, I came across a, a poem. And it was a tremendously meaningful poem to me. And I had a numerous, a couple of my daughters uh, memorize this like 10-page poem. Uh, Tabitha was the first to do it, and Mercy then did it later. It's a powerful poem, and it's a picture of a little boy. I'm not going to communicate read you the poem or have it read. It's too long for here. But it, it, it's the story. It's a, it's a story of a little boy running a race. And the gun goes off and the boy begins to run. And he's looking really good. He's out there. He's almost up in front. But he trips and he falls. And he struggles and he thinks, oh my gosh. And he watches the other runners and he looks up in the stand and he sees his dad. He sees his dad saying, so he gets up and he, he runs again. He's, he's almost catching up, but he falls again. Three times he falls. And each time, as he looks into the stand and he sees his father, his father's on his feet, his father's cheering for him. And he's encouraging him, run, get up. So the boy gets up and he finishes the race to a standing ovation of people applauding for him. He came in last place. But every time he fell, he got up and he continued his race. And that's the picture I have lived with ever since then. Have I stumbled on the track? Absolutely. 
Have I failed? Have I committed sin? Have I hurt people? Yes, I have. But I've made a choice that God is in the stands cheering and encouraging me to get up and win the race. And I'm no longer picturing him as mad at me and angry. That's a profound change of thinking. It's a profound change of the narrative of my life for 20 I was, I was 29, so probably, you know, 20 years had lived with a false narrative that since that day has been absolutely shattered, and I live with a new narrative. We long for transformation. We long for change in our lives. So does God. And He has provided a means for that that is not based on our simple willpower but rather is dependent upon a journey, a journey of adopting the narratives of Jesus, engaging in practices and training exercises, participating in community, not trying to live alone, welcoming the work of the Holy Spirit. And over the next few months, we're going to focus on the narratives of Jesus here on Sunday mornings. What are some of the narratives what are some of the false narratives we have about God and what are some of the true narratives that Jesus communicates about God? But we're also encouraging soul training exercises. This fast is a part of giving you an opportunity to pick one thing in your life. It doesn't have to be sinful. It can simply be something that uses time. How about after work when you get home, you don't first check your email? In the morning, whatever. It doesn't have to be something huge, just something. Just something to practice abstaining. Practice a change. Put something off and put something else there. Read your Bible. Pray. Call a friend. Send a text to a friend encouraging them. Whatever it is, we're encouraging this aspect of soul training exercises. My friend, a few years ago, decided to get up an hour early and has done that every day of his life since then, except for just on a very, very few occasions, has been transformed by the fast. We're also, of course, encouraging the participation in community and welcoming the work of the Holy Spirit. Next week, um, Clara is going to teach on that God is good. Similar to the story I told of my own life. And I would like to encourage you to go to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, this week. And I'd like you to read the creation story, particularly chapter 2, the fall. And I'd encourage you to see if you can identify the false narrative that is given to Eve by Satan. What's the false narrative or narratives that she believes and gives up? What was the true narrative that God gave to them? Clara's going to touch on that as a part of her teaching next week, but I would give it to you as a homework assignment. See what you can do with finding the, what is the true narrative that is presented to us in Genesis chapter 2 and what is the false narrative that many of us still believe. Many of us believe that false narrative and still function out of that false narrative. Let's pray.
Papa, I can't tell you how appreciative I am to know that you are for me, that you are for each one of us, that you are cheering for us, that you are not a mean and angry God waiting to spank us. We have failed. No question about that. We're going to fail. Not much question about that either. But you, the truth is that you are present to help us to fail less and to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we fall. To get up out of the pigsty that we have been living in and to return to Papa and to be welcomed with the embrace, the robe, the ring, and the voice of God saying, my son, my daughter that was lost is found. That is a parable, a story that Jesus gave us of the truth of your heart. You are that father who longs to free and deliver and heal and mend us, to wash and cleanse us of the filth of this world that clings to us in the stench of our lives. And you're not going to do it by punishing us. You're going to be doing you'll do it by embracing us and welcoming us. Thank you. I cannot say you thank you enough. Papa, help us in this in this time as we wrestle with these ideas about who you are. That that we could grasp where we have missed in our understanding of who you are. And have believed things that have, have, are ruining our lives. And Father, even this morning, I just ask in Jesus' name that you would now just touch our hearts, touch our minds. Holy Spirit, you are here. You're here to teach, to guide. I've shared a story here about a false narrative that I have had. Lord, help us, help each one here, even now to understand a place, something they've believed about you that's false. And that your Holy Spirit would give them, would prompt them with understanding about what it really is that's true about you. Some of you, though you have heard the words for decades that God is love and that he loves you, do not believe in your heart of hearts that he loves you. That is a false narrative. Some of you here have believed from early days of your life that you are a mistake. That it would have been better had you not been born. And that's a lie.
Some of you have believed that you can't live, you can't exist without something. There's something that you cling to and have clung to and it is hindering you because your hands are full of that. And God is asking you this morning to open your hands, let go of that which you have clung to, saying you can't live without it. And allow Him to put something else there in your hand. And it might simply be His hand. Let go. Take a hold of His hand. Let go of that false understanding of what you've needed to cling to live. Let it go. other um, words or pictures there that any of our leaders are getting? Every journey, every week is going to be a little bit different. And um, so this morning, what is being offered is just knowing that God loves you, that he's cheering for you, He's not looking for an opportunity to beat you up every single time you do something wrong. So if you want that, stand. Because that's what's being offered. You want the understanding that God is for you. That he loves you. He's not looking for an opportunity to beat you up when you do something wrong. You want to know that Father. You want to know that Jesus, that Holy Spirit. Then stand. Anyone else? Just stay standing, please. Okay, I'm going to ask Randy to pray again over you, and then the body is going to pray for you. And then there's other things. Um, Randy mentioned some words this morning um, relative to how you were feeling. Randy, do you remember what they were? One was that you're holding on to something and saying, I'm not giving this up. And God's saying, let that give it up and let me give you myself in place of this thing that you feel you must have. And if that's you, would you please stand too? Some of that thing that you're holding on to is very painful. It is a very hurtful, painful thing you've gone through. You're having a hard time giving it up. So if that's you, please stand because that's a gift that the Father wants to give to you this morning. Uh, listen, I want Randy to pray first for these people standing. And then you got something to add to what's been said? Okay. I just wanted to re essentially now, having heard her reinforce what Clara was saying. 
And um, to add that many of these narratives or these things that we've clung to, things that we've thought we had to have, you know, we, they're familiar. And we see them as our friends. And that's part of what, and it's the known versus the unknown. And that's a tough choice to make, but that's what the will is for. And um, for those of you that were here last week, uh, when Malcolm Smith taught, um, you know, we, we struggle or can struggle with giving Jesus our sin, our stuff, our pain, our whatever, because, you know, why, why would we want to do that to him? You know, but he's the one that's initiating. He's the one that's asking. And when that transfer takes place, there's a supernatural exchange, and that's what brings about the transformation. Jim, can you put some music on, please? Oh, yes. Thank you that you are here. To confirm your love to each of these, standing and not. That we do not have to perform for you. That it is not about getting it right and not making mistakes. It is simply about getting you. You in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Not that we can get it right, but that you have made us right. Thank you. Father, come today. Come and heal, mend, and deliver these who stand needing healing and freedom from a tyranny for many of them that they have lived with every every hour of every memory that they have. Come and heal. You are here to convince, to wrap your arms around them, to demonstrate your love for them that they don't have to get it right that you have made.